What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. Teenagers have a bad rap. They are intense, moody, emotionally distant, or are they just misunderstood? Today's guest is an expert in teenagers and teen health and has more empathy for this age group than anyone I've ever met. She is going to tell us about how coming of age today is so different from when we were teens. Dr. Hina Talib is an associate professor of pediatrics and an OBGYN at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. She is a spokesperson with the American Academy of Pediatrics and serves on the executive board of the North American Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. As a teen health advocate, Dr. Talib leads a popular Instagram account at Teen Health Doc where you will find her most timely tips and stories. Hina, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So how is coming of age today so different from when we were teens? Oh my goodness. Coming of age is such a special time, but the world has changed from when we were teens. Everything is faster now. There's so much more information. There's so much more access to information. Puberty itself feels faster. It is, in fact, younger. And I don't know. I feel teens today carry literally the weight of the world on their shoulders in a way that we didn't as much when we were younger. Everything from all the issues like climate change and income inequality, racial injustice, and on and on. I feel like it's just heavier. What are some of the health issues that teens face because of all these things? Yeah, I, you know, adolescence it's such a it's such a magical time in development because you're laying the footprints of behavior and and so it's a really wonderful age group to work with and there are periods of risk when you might take some risks that are developmentally normal to do of course but they can get you in trouble so things like substance use or smoking, if they're started in these young adolescent, these critical years, they can be lifelong, unfortunately. Things like that reproductive health concerns like sexually transmitted infections, actually teens carry a greater burden of, of 
disease when it comes to STIs than other age ranges, everything from unintended pregnancies and, and, you know, of course, mental health. Yeah. So we love to hate teens. I feel like they have such a bad rap. Um, Oh my gosh. Yes. Why do you have so much sympathy for them? And like, what inspired you to work with this age group that like the rest of us are just like, Oh, send them, send them to boarding school. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. I think teenagers are absolutely fantastic. And I do agree with you that they get a bad rap. I think they're misunderstood and I think that it gets propagated, you know, in parenting groups and in media, but I think that adolescents are wired to do exactly what they're going to do and that is to develop, to take risks, to take to grow, to stretch literally their minds, their bodies, their hearts. I love how straightforward they are. I love how they can think outside of the box. I love their humor. I think I have a uh, a really healthy sense of nostalgia for my own adolescence. I you know, mm. I love everything teeny bopper when it comes to media. I, I like never grew out of that phase. Um, uh, but I think it's because that that age range is just it's really it's a really special time and it really resonates with me. And there are the people there are other people who who see teenagers in this positive light. And I I encourage everybody to just think about that narrative that that bad rap narrative of them being moody and um, difficult. And instead, think of them doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to push. They're supposed Mm. to call you out. They're supposed to learn to say no. And so in a sense, you know, these things that are really uncomfortable for for some people around teenagers, that's that's exactly the beauty of where they are in life. Yeah. So you kind of have to change your expectations of the human that you're talking to because they're like this little, they're a little adult, right? Many of them are fully grown at at that age. And you might expect them to interact like an adult, but you're saying you kind of have to bring a little bit of empathy into your interactions with them because their brain is still changing. Yeah, their brain is still, it's, it's growing and stretching and doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And what's important is that a really important part of working with youth today and supporting youth today is what we call positive youth development or a strengths-based approach. But positive youth development, you know, the more positive rewards their brains can get, the more those get wired. So it's just so important to lift them up and to feed those like positive feedback loops. And, and to, you know, if you got that negativity in your mindset, because, you know, whatever, it's life, it's frustrating sometimes. It's hard to be a parent of a teen. I've heard from so many parents, but check it, just, just check Mm. it and try to, and try to, as exactly as you said, try to approach it with empathy, with wonder, with curiosity, with sort of think back to how, how you would have liked to be talked yeah. to when you were a teenager. So I always say, I'm so glad social media didn't exist when I was young, because then we would have this like online record of my terrible hair colors and clothing choices. What is it like for these teens that have had social media since they were born? It's been part of their life that they've been documented by others They've documented their own life. They're watching their peers digitally. Can you give us a little bit of idea about how social media has kind of changed the teen experience? A hundred percent. Social media is undoubtedly a 
large player and a large difference in how we grew up compared to how teens are growing up today. It's not all bad. It is this great way to connect, to see people who look similar to you or have similar thoughts to you that you may not have in your real world. So it has, you know, it's a way to get information that might take you to new places and expand your mind, expand your horizons. You might be able to make friends that are not friendships and friends that are not available to you in your in your immediate real life circles and those can be really positive things so it's not all bad but yes i think that in some teens who use it very very heavily especially in our young teenage girls that are going through a time of their life where their bodies are changing and they're self-critical about their bodies. And that's normal. That that's You get very sensitive about your body because your body's changing. And then you add social media into the mix and you add those awful filters that change the way you look and you get inundated with this, you know, with diet talk and with with biases. And, mm-hmm. and so, so it's very, very, it can be very, very disruptive to some teens. And I think we have to figure out the right balance. You know, I think people talk about screen time and I don't really think that that's helpful. I think from the moment that you wake up in the morning to the moment that you go to bed, screens are all around us. And I think it's helpful for us to talk about screen free time and just sort of elevate those times when you actually aren't around even a screen, let alone just looking at a screen. And, you know, I think the last thing I'll say is I, social media, unfortunately, is sort of here to stay and um, and screen time screens are here to stay. So we need to help teens develop skills to use social media, use media and not let media use them. And mm, so really like, like empowering them to, to, to develop the skills to do that and like feeding into that. I love that. That's a good way to think about it. That there's, it, it's kind of like alcohol. I don't know if you're going to agree with this one, but it's kind of like <laughs> alcohol and how teenagers who grow up in Europe, who maybe have a glass of wine with their parents when they're 16, 17 years old, they go to college and it's not a big deal. But for kids who it's been banned for might then drink more. Is that, is there any truth to that? Or is that just you know, how we like no, to think about? <laughs> I will, I will push back with you on okay. that because, because, because alcohol is in fact not optimal for a developing brain, for a young okay. teenage brain. Just like nicotine and cigarette smoking is not optimal. Like in, in, in our you know best case scenario, we would avoid it. But social media isn't 100% avoidable and it's not addictive in the same way. And so, so yeah, I, I think of it as slightly different than what we would think typically think of as like a substance or an addiction situation. Yeah. I will say a similarity is, yes, you can get addicted to social media. You can yeah. have what we call problematic um, use and, and there's help for that. So if that, you know, if there, if anyone's listening and you're concerned, there's help for that, of course. So one thing I remember being so hard for me as a teenager was waking up extremely early to get to school by, I think it was like seven, seven fifteen in the morning. So we know that sleep is really important for children of all ages. It's important for all of us. Tell us why like schools start so early and is there a movement to push it back? And would that be healthier for kids if they were able to sleep in a little bit later? A hundred percent. Sleep is so important for adolescents. They need their at least nine to 12 hours. And something happens when you are going through puberty in that your sleep cycle shifts a little bit later. So instead of going to sleep at like nine, they get sleepy closer to 11. And that's just normal 
development for a teenager. But that also means that they don't quite, their biological clocks, their circadian rhythms don't quite wake them up at the times, you know, in the 6 to 7 a.m. hour that we are waking them up. And so they're waking up against their physiology and having to get to school and then having to be in a classroom doing math and science and other things like first yeah. thing in the morning. So yeah, this this is actually a huge problem. And there is more awareness now. I think like all of adolescents, all of the issues that, you know, that could be health and wellness issues in adolescents is is getting more attention right now, thankfully. And so much of kind of supporting adolescents is is looking at the systems that they live in and then advocating for the systems to work for them, not against them. And unfortunately, I would say that these early or, you know, usual normal school start times that are before 8 a.m., these are not they are in direct conflict with their bodies. And so, yeah, there is a, there is a big push um, to change to later school start times so that teens can be, you know, get their, get, we, we know studies have shown us that this is a good idea, that teens yeah. will get more sleep. And when you, when you sort of help with their sleep deprivation, because teens actually are chronically sleep deprived, they do better in school. They have less car accidents. they have less stress, mental health issues. They even have less physical complaints. And so sleep is so very important as is, you know, looking at other places in our lives where we have to really advocate for our teens. Yeah. What other systems problems are there that you advocate for? Oh my gosh. What are the things that are most harmful to adolescents and young adults right now? I would say gun violence and I would say drug use, opioid use, the, you know, this rising rash of uh, rapid rate of, of increase in deaths from fentanyl is just shocking. And these are, and you know, and so the systems why, and, and, and nicotine and cigarette and vaping, it's funny. So pediatrics is very much prevention. And when you work, and, and we know that as pediatricians, and adolescent medicine or, or working with adolescents is very much advocacy. And, and it's hard because people always try to say, oh, you're a doctor, stay in your lane. You know, it's, it's pediatrics, not politics. And it's like, well, actually, when you're taking care of an adolescent, looking at the systems that they live in and looking at sort of the disparities and everything that I mentioned, you look at the disparities in our youth of color and our youth who identify as LGBTQ, it's shocking. So the systems do matter. And if we aren't addressing the systems to take care of our teens, then we're falling short. I love that. Uh, we had, we've had a couple of episodes that have touched upon some of these topics. We had an episode on fentanyl with a mother who lost her son to a accidental fentanyl ingestion. We've talked about gun violence and gun violence in schools. I feel like a lot of these, a lot of the major pressing issues just so happen to impact young people, disproportionately impact young people. That is accurate. And that is why we need to step up and support young people and they need more resources. And it's, and it takes, it takes a bigger public health effort to, to do that. Yeah. Well, they're easier to write off. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so, you know, that yeah. cuts me so, it cuts yeah. me so deep because they're not they're as easier. cute as babies though. Okay. They're not as yeah, cute. Okay. Fine. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, but I, I am yeah. drawn to that funny adolescent that's sitting across yeah. the hall that will show me something really cool on TikTok that will make me laugh. <laughs> But, you know, they, they, they're they a very special group. We'll be right back after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So you practice something that that you call adolescent medicine. Can you tell us what this is and how it's different from general pediatrics? Yeah. So adolescent medicine is a subspecialty within uh, pediatrics. So people can be a pediatric GI or a pediatric cardiologist, or you can choose to do three more years of training and be an adolescent medicine specialist like me. And I love that you're asking me because Pete, no one has heard about our little field. We're a young field. Of, <laughs> of, <laughs> we're a very young field. Um, and there are only a couple hundred practicing adolescent medicine docs in the country. Wow. And it's a really cool specialty because people come to us from pediatrics, but also from internal medicine and family medicine. Mm. And so it's it's sort of just finding this intersection of people who are interested in this age-based group of care. Mm-hmm. I think what's similar, what helps some people to understand, you know, what I do is it's similar to geriatrics. So it's sort of like I am a, I am a one-stop shop to take care of this age group. So if you find an adolescent medicine doctor to take care of your child, we will take care of everything from their puberty, their physical development, to their mental health, to sports medicine, to dermatology, to, you know, all the various things that might um, impact their kind of growth and development. Interesting. And so this is somewhere between then pediatrics. It's inclusive of pediatrics, but maybe also pulling in from just general medicine. So you're kind of like going, you have the clinicians that are both upstream and downstream for this group. Yes. And what's interesting about what you just said is a huge part about adolescence is transitioning from childhood to adulthood. And people often think of like babies, they think of children, and then they go to adults. And it's like, well, no, there's this whole age range in the middle. And walking them through the steps of having their parents be the CEO of their worlds and their health health lives to having the parents step back and change into a consulting role and having the young person take over and own their own rights to healthcare and their bodies 
it's really quite a transition and a, quite a handoff. Yeah. And so I, I love that space in between of, of being their pediatrician. And then, you know, eventually when they're, you know, somewhere closer to 20, handing them off to a, to their, their next provider, whether that's a family medicine doc or an adult doc, but we call it transitioning. And it actually starts early where you start to talk to a young person, even as young as 11. Hey, by the way, I won't be your pediatrician forever. Unfortunately, you know, we're going to get you to a point where you're in charge of yourself and we're going to teach you the skills along the way to, to get you there. I love that. So you said it was a, like a newer specialty. How long has it been around? Oh, like 10, 10, between 10 and 20 years. Um, yeah. So I actually had the privilege of being a fellowship director for adolescent medicine, which means I was in charge of training future adolescent medicine docs for the last eight years at the Children's Hospital of Montefiore. And I really loved that role Mm. because I live and breathe adolescent medicine, but be able to inspire others to go into the field and to help train them was a very special part of my my role. Yeah. And there are only a few hundred of you now. Is that growing Mm -hmm. as a specialty? It is. It is. You know, maybe, maybe 20, 30 of us are added every year. Um, but then you have, you may have people who retire as well. So, um, so mm. yes, there's not enough of us. I mean, we are maybe 0.01% of all pediatricians in America are adolescent medicine experts or specialists. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So we're tiny, tiny. And if you think about it, which is, it's just the needs of this age group are going through a renaissance. People finally are understanding that investing in adolescence is this, is going to lead to investing in adult health because you're going to be able to prevent. If you prevent cigarette smoking in, at a young age, that that is huge impacts for for an adult. And then it also ends up becoming generational. Like you can impact generations by helping behavior change in this special age group. Yeah. So yeah. So when you see a teen patient, you sometimes ask the parents to leave the room. I'm curious (laughs) what the parents' response is to that, because that never happens in pediatrics, or at least it hasn't happened in my experience. So what are, what, how do the parents respond to that? And then what kind of happens in that one-on-one time where something is happening that you don't want the parent in the room for? Yeah. So this is the spice of adolescent medicine. So one of the (laughs) cornerstones of what we do or what we empower young people is to have private time with their doctor. And so we ask the parent to, to step outside the room. And But what's important before this happens is that we explain to the teen and the parent that, you know, we're a triangle here, your parents, your doctor, and you. And we're all here to support each other and support you through your health and wellness journey. And and what's very important is the parent-teen communication. I do a lot of work in the, the space of parent-teen communication, and I it is just so important to help help them communicate. And it's important to their health, actually. Like they will have better health outcomes if they can talk to each other about health. And so what happens is I assure the parents that I'm also going to be, as as much as I'm going to be spending that one-on-one time asking questions, I'm also going to be encouraging them to share everything we talk about with their parent. And then also there are limits to confidentiality. So confidentiality is a right afforded to minors. So minors are, you know, under under 18. Under 18 year olds have some protections under the law. And it's really cool because it varies state by state in terms of what you can talk to your doctor about if you are under 18, that remains confidential between you and your doctor and your your doctor cannot tell your parent Mm. by law. Yeah. And then if you're 18 and older, actually 
HIPAA applies. So you're actually yeah. protect, you have actually <laughs> protected health information. And so yeah. many parents literally fall over laughing when I ask an 18 year old, would you like your parents to stay in the room for this visit? Or would you like me to, because they, 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 they all, they often get a chuckle out of it because their kid, they still feel very much in charge of, of their child. But at 18, I actually have to ask their the permission of the young person of who they want me to share their health information with. Yeah. So that's always kind of a funny thing. But but yeah, so minors do have some rights to confidentiality. And the reason why confidentiality protections are important is that teens who we explain this confidentiality to and who get that private time with us share more about their risk behaviors with us mm. and they return to care more. And so it's just, it's been, you know, it's an evidence-based, all the professional societies support it of a way of delivering best adolescent care. And you tell them, I'm not going to share this with your parents. You reassure them in that conversation. You reassure them in that conversation. And you also share the limits of confidentiality. So Mm. there, it is not, you know, like carte blanche. So you, if there is a concern for self-harm or for suicidality, then those are limits. Or if we are concerned that there is abuse happening, then you're a mandatory reporter. So there are limits to confidentiality. And you do explain that to the the parent and the teen before this is all happening so that they are aware of those limits. And people often ask me like, oh my God, what happens? Do parents get really upset? Do Do they say no? I have so rarely after explaining why we do this, I, it's been it's been you know once in a year if that 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 somebody has a hard time with it. Yeah, it, you're in New York City. It might. I am in New York. City. Your peers, mm-hmm. your peers in other areas might have parents that are perhaps more controlling of their children and maybe wouldn't react so kindly to being asked to leave the room. Yes, that is a hundred percent true. And also, the laws don't support all of the different topics that you can discuss and keep confidential. Yeah. So there's there's a variety. And yes, it, it, you can go to um, the Guttmacher Institute. You can go mm-hmm. to their website and they have a beautiful chart that will um, show you state by state some of the, the items that you are able to talk to, including, so it varies in terms of reproductive health, in terms of uh, mental health, in terms of substance abuse, what you can and cannot talk to. But yes, you are right that there are, of course, some parents in, in certain places that would have a harder time with this. And, you know, for that, baby steps. We just yeah. develop trust and we try, if not that time, we'll try again the next time. But I think when you, or my experience, when you share the rationale of why it's important, folks usually do understand. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about the teens whose parents are conservative or religious who come to you or their provider wanting birth control, wanting an STI test. How does that work? And is there, obviously it's state by state. So maybe we just talk about it in New York. How can we help those teens while making sure that their relationship with their parents, you know, remains intact? Okay. So now you're getting really spicy. So in New York, teens have a protected legal right to birth control. So we'll just take the example of birth control. Um, And so if they come seeking birth control, it is my obligation and their right for me to be able to prescribe birth control to them and to review all the options and, of course, give them an informed picture and help pick what option that they would most prefer to use. Without their parents knowing? Without their parents knowing. Okay. 
and it's a state protected legal right. And it is also something that we um, that so just because we say that, right, we, there, there are the systems may not always protect their confidentiality. And so what I mean by that is like if they bill the insurance and their explanation of benefits goes to the parent and the parents open the letter mm. and it has a line item there for, you know, birth control pills, then your confidentiality is busted. Yeah. And, and if your office sends a letter home asking, oh, you're checking, want to do a, a you know, a a checkup on you because you just started hormone pills or or if they call home and they don't kind of confirm who they're speaking to on the phone, they didn't maybe take the teen's confidential phone number down and list it in a specific part of the chart. So there are there are pitfalls to confidentiality that we in adolescent medicine have sort of learned learned through and have figured out how to stay ahead of. But we uh, are often teaching our pediatric colleagues and folks who work in hospital settings to really take care of um, the medical record, of the ele- electronic medical record, the portal, who has access to the portal. Mm, and, yeah. you know, if the, does the, the, so we really like teens to have their own portal so that they have a place to get information that their parents aren't accessing. And so these are some of the pitfalls and some of the kind of workarounds or things that we have to keep in mind when we're yeah. trying to provide this, uh, you know, healthcare right. Yeah. So what happens if like, now I'm getting really specific, but I'm curious if um, a 15, 16 year old young teen came to you saying, you know, my, my parents would be so upset if they knew I was sexually active and I can't take the pill because they could find it in my room. Will you give me an IUD? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, okay. so yeah. So, so IUDs are, are considered yeah. a form of birth control. Um, the, it's the intrauterine device. There are a couple yeah. different options within that, that category. And yeah, it's still, it falls under the realm of, of reproductive health care and birth control. And so you can still, um, place an IUD or start an IUD, start that birth control method in an adolescent without having to disclose it to their parents in the state of New York. Okay, great. And I'm sure that for a lot of teens, that's a better option than the pill. Yeah, you know, it is an option that that many teens really do um, enjoy. And it is an option that we we used to sort of lead with it. Like we used to say, listen, it's it's a long acting reversible contraceptive. So it's kind of a one and done thing. You don't have to keep getting prescriptions and you don't have to you worry less about missing pills and this and that. And so honestly, for, for years, we used to lead with it and just say, it's our number one, it's our number one. And I think we've dialed it down a little bit because the better way to have a conversation with a teen about birth control, instead of saying, it's our number one, it's our number one, is tell me your story. Tell me your birth control story. Like, what have you thought? What have you tried? When would you like to start a family to really come at it as from a place of being curious about their reproductive goals and what their fertility goals might be for the future and to then develop a wholesome plan? Because they may, you know, they, they may and they may have every right to prefer, you know, a different method than the IUD. But I will, but I will say that many teens love it. They absolutely love it. Yeah, there's more discretion there. I hadn't really thought about that from that point of view. So another specific situation, I'm curious how it works for teen health is gender affirming care. And again, we'll speak to New York since every state is different. But if there is a teen who disagrees with their parents on the topic, how would how would you handle that? Yeah. So, you know, gender affirming care is, is another, um, and just, and care of, uh, LGBTQ identifying 
adolescence is a central part of adolescent medicine. And I think it's a very special part of what we do because it's the approach, it's the care, it's the counseling. And because they, you know, they carry an unfair, a heavier burden of a lot of risk outcomes and both in physical health, reproductive health, and mental health. So all that being said, it's so very important to provide gender affirming care and sensitive care to this population. And luckily in New York, we are able to do so. Now, to provide that care and that approach, it, it, there's different levels of that care. So there's, you know, I, if you, they want to be screened for STDs, we can do that. If they want counseling, we can do that. So if it's a younger adolescent and you're you're not going to necessarily start hormones, which is, I think, a question that I get more specifically from parents. Like, you know, would they start hormones on my teen without me knowing? In practice, this doesn't happen. It's it's like a it's a beautiful conversation with the family. The younger the teen, the more heavily the family is involved, typically, and and so it is a conversation. And and once you are prescribing medications, it does become a little bit more inclusive of parents than otherwise. Mm. I think we could do a, a whole episode on this topic. Oh. I would love yeah. to. It's so it's just so important because yeah. quite frankly their human rights are not supported, you know, as we are seeing as as legislation comes around in the in the US and they're at risk of suicide and and they they unfortunately are dying. And it, so it really it's really a human rights issue and it really is an important area for advocacy for all of us but especially yeah. those in my field. So what needs to change in healthcare for teens and adolescents? Oh my gosh, I wish every teen had access to an adolescent medicine specialist. That is my dream. That is why I speak out in media. And and so some of that might be training up people and to be speaking to these issues and elevating these issues. I truly believe adolescent health is in a renaissance area where people are finally paying attention for better or worse, you know, probably because we are reacting to a mental health wave and to rights being kind of pushed back on in, for this age group. So so I think it may be reactive, but whatever it is, it's a renaissance. People are paying attention. People are waking up to how important taking care of adolescents are. So I, my dream and my hope is to, is to really increase the impact of my field. And so that might be more of us. That might be us sharing out more of what we do because because my field is so young, a lot of people are still academics tied to children's hospital settings, which is wonderful. And, and my colleagues do wonderful, amazing work. But unfortunately, sometimes that work doesn't get heard outside our academic silos. And so I encourage and I have a cadre of colleagues in adolescent medicine and we we're out there and we want we want people to hear about our colleagues. We want to amplify their work and we want to increase the impact and access to adolescent medicine. And in fact, I am co-founding a company right now called Thread Health and that it aims to be the first digital health company that will put healthcare in the hands of teens and parents who support them. Amazing. When are you guys launching? We are seeing our first patients in the next few weeks in New York. So I'm Amazing. really excited about that. Yeah, yep. I can't wait mm-hmm. to see this roll out. I think it's going to be game changing for so many families. Hina, we really appreciate all that you do for teens. I now have a better appreciation for what I generally think of as just like a moody, <laughs> a, a, a moody little person. Um, and I just really appreciate all the advocacy and sympathy and work that you do. So thank you so much. And thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to hear me out and to share out about adolescent medicine. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.